did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Joe Rose's death and sex garage and the murders of gay men and, you know, the AIDS conference in 89 and Quebec Human Rights Commission hearings on gay and lesbian by trans issues. You know, they're each like throwing a pebble into a pond and they reverberate. They create waves that reach people and places and things that can't help but grow. I've said it before, and it bears repeating. What happened here in Montreal in the early 90s transformed the way we talk about violence, about AIDS, about homophobia, and what it means to be queer. Here it's Parc de l'Espoir. Yeah. Uh, this is a, also a place where uh, I was with Joe. Uh, back then, uh, so I'm back in the village with Louis-Alain Robitaille, who we met at the beginning of this series. He's showing me around the Parc de l'Espoir, the Park of Hope, a tiny patch on a street corner, now a village landmark. Around here, but it was not even a park back then. It was an empty lot. And uh, some uh, activists put a lot of pressure on the city of Montreal to turn it into a memorial for gay people who died from AIDS. It was Act Up Montreal who first used the space to gather and grieve. About three years ago, after the Orlando massacre, we held a vigil here, and all the politicians were here, and we had about 5,000 people here on the street. It was full, 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 as wide as the street. As Robitaille and I walked through the village, he points out the changes he's been part of over the last three decades. Oh, this is the surveillance camera that Mr. Cadet had installed. Went from 30 aggressions to three the next year. So quite significant. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Louis-Alain wasn't always an activist. But after his friend Joe Rose was killed in 1989, he began to fear for his safety. I thought it could have been me. I could have been that guy that night, and they, they just thought that I looked too gay, and that was reason enough to just push a knife in my heart. He died right there, you know? He died instantly, like, in the bus. And I think it had that effect on a lot of people. It was such a big loss to lose a guy who was not afraid like that and who was ready to make things better. It was a, a loss that's still hard to describe today. But it was traumatic enough that I left Montreal for six months. When he came back, he was determined to honor his friend and became an activist. Over the years, the village has become a safer place, thanks in part to the work of ACTA. But then, a few years ago, Louis-Alain noticed a change. And suddenly, in 2013, we had all these aggressions. And nothing was being done. It was like... He immediately created a Facebook page, Le Carré Rose, the Pink Square, 
a new collective against homophobia and violence in the village. And within 24 hours, we had 2,000 people liking the page. So we knew that there was something there. That kind of traction got everyone's attention. The media, the mayor, and the police, who soon got in touch. With the Pink Square, we were going to meet them, and we got good assistance, and they really listened to us, and it, it really changed a lot. They assigned to the Pink Square a gig cop who would help victims of homophobic attacks. He would go to their place to take the deposition. Like, th this is major. This is almost a friendship, you know? Like, it's, it's like, yeah, we know you, we respect you, you want to do this, and we're going to help you. If you compare that to police raids when I got in Montreal, it's not a joke to be a gay guy anymore. It's not acceptable to call somebody a faggot anymore, you know? This is completely the opposite of when I got in Montreal. The complete opposite. So what changed? And how? It may have started with community pressure, but a lot of the changes happened behind closed doors and led to answers about whether or not a serial killer was preying on gay men in the village in the early 90s. I'm Francis Plourde. This is The Village, The Montreal Murders. Episode 7, Atonement. We in Montreal are a community of minorities. We need to learn how to address barriers of ignorance of one another, because ignorance breeds fear, and fear breeds violence. We just turned a page of history. We had so bad relation with the police, it's like night and day. If only Joe Rose, a gay brother, queer by for death, would see us now. In 1991, Montreal's homicide squad initially rejected the idea that they were dealing with a killer on the loose. No, we don't think that it could be a serial killer, not at this time. But as the body count mounted, homicide chief Pierre Sangolo started to take the possibility seriously. We have concentrated together eight files from last year and the year before, and the two latest murder. And uh, I, at this present time, there is a special analysis that is being done. That special analysis included assigning new detectives to cold cases. Sangalo also sent one investigator to expand their scope outside of Quebec, a mission that turned out to be eye-opening. Detective Michel Provo headed to Brampton, Ontario, to meet with a group of investigators, homicide detectives from across the country, even profilers from the FBI. For several days, some of the top experts in North America sifted through Montreal's police reports, trying to establish a profile. It was the first time Montreal's homicide squad analyzed the murders this way. In the end, though, they concluded that the presence of a serial killer was unlikely. 
moi, ça a allumé une lumière, énorme, une grosse lumière. Une 200 watts. Faut dire, vraiment, je dis, ça précise. But Provo says the trip was a wake-up call for other reasons. The experts concluded that Montreal's murder investigations were completely inadequate. On n'avait pas de photos des personnes à l'autopsie. No photos of the victims, none of the crime scenes, and typically no coroner's report until weeks after the crime. The Montreal police were not even connected to the national database profiling victims and suspects across the country. The experts in Brampton said these flaws were crippling their investigations. Provost says he left the meeting shaken. As soon as he was back in Montreal, he told Sangolo they had a major problem to fix. J'ai fait des recommandations. Sangolo took the recommendations seriously. C'est quand la communauté gay et lesbienne, mais surtout gay, là, And Provo credits the gay community for making that happen. C'était l'élément déclencheur. He said it was their insistence that forced the homicide squad to take a closer look at how it approached its investigations. But that change happened behind the scenes. And it would take another two years for the community to finally feel heard. Je vous remercie d'être ici ce matin. A couple of words in French uh, resumes a bit in English. In 1993, the Quebec government held hearings into violence and discrimination against gays and lesbians. We knew that we were basically making history. We were living history. This is Fonini. He chaired the hearings. We're talking about people being killed, people being strangled, people being stabbed to death. And we felt that it's about time that we should do something to address the violence, because violence begets violence. Violence would encourage violence, would normalize anti-gay violence, anti-AIDS violence. And also because of the, you know, there's uh, sex garage, uh, the raids and the conflict with the police, we could feel the boiling point. As police were about to testify, they had a choice to make. They could deny the problem or own it. Up until the last minute, Michael Hendricks had little hope that they would do the right thing. And the police arrived about quarter to nine, and they had a huge pile of documents. And they said, oh, forget about what you've already presented. Oh, you got it, just throw it away. We're gonna, this is the new presentation. Well, it was a bit of a surprise. C'est ma responsabilité de m'assurer que les efforts sont faits sans discrimination. They said that they felt that this was an important moment for them to start working with the gay and lesbian community on questions of violence. In other words, they folded like a tent overnight. Mes enquêteurs ont patrouillé en civil. Now suddenly they were promising the Human Rights Commission and all of Quebec by way of the media that they were going to get off their chairs and do something, and we're going to get to the bottom of the story. I felt like Cinderella, and it was like, you know, you get invited to the ball, and the Prince dance was with you. You know, it was amazing. And now, all of a sudden, the community was showing that it cared, and they were no longer embarrassed to say that homosexuals mattered. It was a stunning victory. 
and promised to be a huge shift in the way that law enforcement worked with the gay community. But Michael and his fellow activists were about to find out just how crucial their input would become to police investigations. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. Like many of the other victims, Harry Nolan was stabbed to death. In this case, the knife was left in his neck. In the morning of uh, the 6th of December, 1993, that uh, the phone rang, I answered it, and a policeman said that there had been a murder that would appear to be a gay murder uh, the night before, and that he would like Douglas and I and Raji come to the homicide department. For the first time ever, police called on activists from the community to help solve these so-called gay murders. They put the photos on the table, laid them out all, said, this is the guy, that's the story. Um, do you know him? No, we never heard of him. Um, 57-year-old laborer uh, living in the West End. But we could read the scene, and there were some of the usual paraphernalia for gay relations was there, including enamel nitrate or poppers, uh, which was constant on bedroom scenes and in kitchen scenes in the murders. It was clear that the police didn't know much about gay life. And they were honest. They said, you know, what in the world is this thing? What's that thing? You know, look at this odd photo we found in the the room, what's that mean, you know, and stuff like that. And we could interpret as best we could, but Douglas had an enormous repertory of gay culture and he could read just about anything. Like what? Well, a question from the policeman is, why would anyone have put rubber gloves next to the bed? Well, that was for certain sex acts that require rubber gloves for make sure that there's no transmission of disease. And But it didn't dawn on them that that was, this were sex toys really. And other sex toys, like dildos, they knew about that and stuff like that. But more subtle things, no. How would they know they didn't participate in gay life? Now that members of the community had direct access to the case files, they could also share news of how the investigations were unfolding. We are saying now that there is not a serial killer from what we have seen this morning, but there certainly is a series of murders and a phenomenon that has developed. But Douglas Bouclé-Couvrette and Michael Hendricks saw something else missing in those files. You see, in the case of our murders, their lives were private, and no one knew those things about them, and the families were ashamed of them, so there was almost no family to look after them. Douglas and I decided that we were going to become the family of each new cadaver. Michael Hendricks would keep working with the police, and he says that one man was ultimately responsible for improving relations with the community. Jacques Duchesneau. 
He took over as chief of police shortly after the human rights hearings. One of Duchesneau's first acts was to invite Michael, Douglas and their friends to his inauguration. They were the only civilians in the room. It was a special occasion. Mr. Duchesneau made a speech in which he referenced us and said that he intended to open the police department. We were the first strangers to be involved. We would not be the last. And he welcomed us. And he was sincere. Jacques Duchesneau is a household name in Quebec. He made headlines in the 80s for arresting his own boss for drug trafficking. Saint-Jérôme. Should be there in four minutes. Two thirty sharp. So that's a camera there on the lamp. Duchesneau agreed to meet us, but it would be a bit cloak and dagger. He told us to head into the parking lot by the church in Saint Jérôme, north of Montreal. Once there, he'd give us a call. And we wait. Yeah. What time is it? Two thirty. 2.32, actually. Oh. Oui, allô? Duchesneau. is still working, investigating corruption in the city. We followed his directions to the back of a plain brick building. Duchesneau greeted us by the door and quietly led us into an empty office. Bonjour, Monsieur Duchesneau. Looking for a great band. Early on, in 1994, when he made his speech in front of the police department, insisting on equality and fair treatment, Duchesneau knew he was breaking new ground. And at the end of the speech, a civilian member came to me and he said, thank you. I said, what for? He said, uh, I'm going through that myself. My son just told me he was gay. Didn't know what to do. So he said, you know, hearing my, my chief mentioning that, you know, it was all right, uh, he said, I feel better. You know, I think I was getting my message across. Society was evolving, so we had to put our act together. Of course, they hit a few hurdles along the way. In February of 1994, police raided the Cox Bar on St. Catherine Street. 165 men were arrested for being found in a body house. Again, the exact kind of targeting the gay community had been decrying for years. Activists demanded a meeting with the chief of police. And they came in my office and we had a conversation and I saw two leaders who believed in what should be done and uh, they explained to me that it was unfair. Michael Hendricks told me about this meeting too, although he described it being a bit more heated. And uh, Mr. Duchesneau did his mea culpa after yelling at us for, you know, not being on his side, then accepted the fact that it was going to never happen again. And it did stop. And they started treating us like people, as bad or as good as they are with other citizens. That's what we wanted. Only the equal treatment, not better treatment. From there on, the road got smoother. Duchesneau introduced community policing, Smaller stations cropped up across Montreal's neighborhoods and one opened in the village. And Michael and Douglas continued to collaborate with the police for a few more years. They went on for at least into 1996. 
Policemen came from other places, like from uh, the Maritimes, with their photos and asked us to read them for them, and also from Toronto. We learned a lot about gay life ourselves and kind of people and situations that pickles that people get into. And it's really the leaders of the community that uh, brought the pieces together. Afterwards, that's when we started arresting people because we got the pattern. One after the other, they succeeded. The first day, we'd look at the pictures with them, and then we would keep up with them. And in other words, it was a very good public relations tool for them. And we shut up. We stopped complaining. There were no more disputes. It just quieted down really quickly. And no more murders. Well, fewer murders. And now, police were solving more of them. In 1995, police swiftly dealt with the brutal killing of local actor Richard Niquette, arresting two people within days of the murder. Later that year, police managed to solve another case, also described as a hate crime. We just turned a page of history. We had so bad relation with the police, it's like night and day. Yes they made an important change. But it had come with a price. 17 lives. Richard Galland, Joe Rose, Brian Booth, Young Swamok, Gaetan Etier, Robert Assali, Normand Garraud, Marc Bellerive, Pierre-Yvon Croft, Garfield Walker, Yves Lalonde, Daniel Lacombe, Michael Hogue, Robert Pinchot, Roland Gagné, Warren Ealing, and Harry Dolan. In 1994, a guy named Stéphane Corbeil confessed to the killing of Garfield Walker three years earlier. Another man eventually came forward for the 1993 murder of Michael Hogue. Then, in 1998, there was a third confession. And with this one, police learned that there was, indeed, a serial killer hunting in the village. He said it was like uh, hunger, it was a strong need. Michael McGray, a large man with a clear psychopathic drive, had a spotty and varied criminal career. He was first arrested for robbing a cab driver in New Brunswick in 1987. But by that time, Unbeknownst to police, McGray was already a killer. He was in and out of jail over the next decade, mostly for smaller crimes. But this left him the opportunity to kill again, including two victims in Montreal's gay village. Robert Rasley, a retired school teacher, was his first victim. Lawyers say Michael McGray wasn't homophobic, but he was homicidal. McGray while on day parole, had asked for a three-day pass to visit Montreal during Easter weekend in 1991. Homosexuals were easy victims. You could go in a bar, have conversation, get invited and profit from a favorable moment to attack and kill your victim. On March 30th, he met Robert Assali at a bar in the village. The two watched hockey, had a few drinks, then went home together. He beat and stabbed Asley 16 times. 
The next day, he targeted Gaetan Etier, who invited him back to his apartment. After stabbing Etier, McGray disappeared for two months before landing back in prison. In 1998, he was picked up for the double homicide of a woman and her daughter in their apartment in Moncton. McGray started telling the police about other murders he had committed across the country over the last decade, including those of Robert Assali and Gaetan Etier. McGray is currently serving seven life sentences. The murders of Gaetan Etier and Robert Assali are what led Michael Hendricks to raise the alarm about a killer on the loose, only to be told by police there was no such thing. That it took the killer's confession, a guy who was already known to police, to solve the murders, still raises questions about what the police were or weren't doing. To this day, seven of the Montreal cases remain unsolved, leaving their families and their friends without resolution. Some continue to speculate, even today. I'm sure there is a serial killer. I'm sure of that. Even after all those years? Yes, um, yes, yes. He's probably dead. (laughs) (laughs) Hope. Roger Leclerc has outlived many people in this story. It's a triumph, as he has been living with HIV for almost half his life. So I go to the pharmacy once a month, take my pills for a month. So this is for a week. So morning, dinner, uh, lunch, dinner, and before I go to bed. So this is the pills. That's quite a cocktail. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not only for AIDS. There is three of them who are for AIDS. You know, I do have the same formula since 99. Always the same thing. Yeah. Uh, each time I see the doctor, are you sure? Yes. Is it une formule gagnant? Go on, it's, it's fine. When the doctors told me that I was seropositive, for me it was clear that I was going to die. That was clear for me. So there was no way out. You're gonna die. So get used to that. But for me, it was, okay, I'm gonna die. But in the same time, I was happy about the life I had. I'm proud of what I am. I'm proud of the life I had. I'm just gonna live these three months and that's it. I was surprised, three months, not dying, not even sick, six months, nothing. It's 30 years now. Others, including his friend, Douglas Bouclet-Couvrette, were not so lucky. Douglas was a good living, very sensitive, beautiful man. He was like a surprise box all the time. I love that man.
After losing many of their friends, Michael Hendricks and his partner René Leboeuf took on another fight. Act up when they got here for the Fifth World Conference on AIDS back in 89, they had a list for things that had to be changed. And number 25 on the list was recognizing gay and lesbian relationships. René and I were never into marriage. Uh, we did not have wedding bell blues. But they became convinced that marriage was key to equality. We felt that we would never get to the bottom of our social problems without having full integration in society. That was in 1997. It would turn into a seven-year battle. And in April 2004, we finally got married. And so as a result, gay marriage at least came to us by way of uh, the AIDS conference here in Quebec, and then by way of the Human Rights Commission. It was like a, a dream come true after all that time going through a lot of lawyers, uh, trying to understand the law, trying to get accepted by the gay community. It was very a uh, good satisfaction. We're very happy, and then we can go on with our life after that. As I sit with Michael and René, I can't help but think of them and all who fought with them in those years as unsung heroes. ACTOP struggled for years to improve healthcare, AIDS research, policing, marriage. And now a new generation of activists are working to dismantle systemic racism and transphobia. The fact I can live my life without fear and enjoy the same rights as others I owe that to their generation. And though the battle is never won, that round was most certainly theirs. Yeah, I think we won the long game. And the reason I know we won is because kids don't think it's a big deal. Last week, I was in the metro and there was just besides me two young lesbians who were kissing, sit in the metro. I had never thought it was possible, something like that. And just go in Montreal, go in Sherbrooke, go anywhere, you will see gays. They are appearing. We can see them, hear them. So that, that is the change. And I love that. The stigma is gone in this generation. So yeah, we won the long game. And I'm proud of that. It doesn't seem to me like we're any different than anybody else, except that we didn't have any choice. But when it came to gay life, what happened to us was... We didn't invite HIV into our lives. It came, and did it change things? We always thought of ourselves as just different people, that's all, you know, in society. And we kept a low profile because we knew that it was dangerous to be gay. Once HIV hit, it was time to act up. And that's what we did.
Season 3 of The Village has been produced by Carrie Haber, Michel Gagnon, and me, Francis Plourde. If you've been moved by this series, the first two seasons of The Village are available on the CBC Listen app or everywhere you get your podcasts. And if you're interested in hearing what our colleagues at Radio-Canada are doing with this story, you'll find the French-language production of Le Village, Meurtre, Combat, Fierté over at audio.ca. And if you want to learn more about serial killer Michael McGray, you can check out Uncover, Dead Wrong. Investigative journalist Tim Bousquet follows the story of Glenn Assoon, a man wrongfully convicted for the murder of Brenda Way in Nova Scotia in 1995. McGray was a suspect in this case. It's shocking, it's riveting, and raises questions about our institutions. Special thanks to Alex Laplante, Jeff Turner, and Dave Donnie, who helped with our studio recordings. Special thanks as well to Joe Rogers for his help with the archives. Our story editors are Chris Oak and Damon Fairless. Our digital producer is SK Robert. Editing, mixing, and sound design by Gabriel Clark and Julia Whitman. Even Agard is our video producer. Ben Shannon designed our artwork. Our cross-promo producer is Amanda Cox. Kerry Haber is the series showrunner. Executive producer is Cecil Fernandez. The director of CBC Podcasts is Arif Nourani. I'm Francis Plourde. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.